All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Daily Power Parsha. It is great to see y'all, and it's really great to, uh, to study Torah together. So, today is Wednesday, and as you know, on Wednesdays, we study which reading? Who's got it? Fourth. Fourth, exactly. We study reading number four. And this week's Torah portion um, is none other than the Torah portion of Ki Tavo, right? Ki Tavo. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to explore. There's a lot to learn. Today we're going to learn about mysterious pillars that were erected after the Jewish people uh, went into, crossed over into the land of Israel. But all of this will become clear as I share my screen with you. And we study together. All right, here we go. Let me show, let me share my screen. Hold on, where are we? Okay, uh, hold on, give me a second. Let me get everything set up here. Okay. I want to try something new. Tell me if this works, okay? Oh, no, that's not going to work. Um, okay, forget it. Nothing new. We're just trying. It's going to be the same old. Same old as usual. No, there's a way to share something and be in front of it, but that's only when it's a PowerPoint. Okay, don't worry about it. All right, here we go. Kitavo, this is reading number four. We are ready to go. I actually have Rashi's commentary already toggled, but let's read it without Rashi first and get the, get the flow. So the Torah now um, tells us the continuation of Moses' communication with the people before his passing. Remember, this is really critical. These are really critical moments. He's going to be gone. The people are going to continue on without him. There's information that needs to be shared, absolutely. So that's, that's, what, that's what's going on right now. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 27. And Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Observe all the commandment, all of the commandment. <laughs> it's singular, by the way. Mitzvah, not mitzvot. Mitzvah, observe all the commandment, that I command you this day. Um, take a look at Rashi. Take a look at Rashi. Hold on, is Sandrine with us? No, I don't see Sandrine here because we have some old French. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. Oh, oh, Donna, you got French? Okay, perfect, perfect. Because we have um, a French word here. Observe all the commandments. Look at Rashi right over here. Hebrew is Shamar. The word Shamar here denotes continuous action, that is to say, you must observe this commandment always. It's not a one-time deal, but it's a consistent, it's a consistent um, uh, uh, observing of the commandment. And then he says, um, gardant. Gardon. Gardon in Old French. Gardon. 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 Hold on. Is that, uh, is that used today? It means let's keep it. Keep it. Guard it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. By the way, if you're, if you're good with the Hebrew, I'm going to highlight, right, whoever's good with the Hebrew, I just highlighted in the Hebrew side how Rashi writes French. He writes it with like two little, um, with like a quotation mark, just to show that it's not Hebrew, a Hebrew word. So, gardant belaz, that means um, uh, belushan, whatever, I'm not sure, it means in a foreign language. And, and, he, and he was, Rashi was French. Keep the laws. Keep the laws. 
French. Keep the laws. There you go. By the way, again, Rashi came from France. So whenever he's trying to give you kind of um, a good translation, because he's, trans he's basically, you know, he's commenting on the Hebrew with Hebrew. Right? He's giving you a biblical comment in the same language. But sometimes there's a word that needs, you know, maybe a little bit more context. So his go-to, Rashi lived like 900 years ago, his, in, in, born in France. So his go-to is to, to use a French word that would, would be a good translation. I mean, it's, it's similar to, you know, if you have a commentary today who would use an English word to kind of explain something. You know, even if their commentary was in Hebrew, they might use an English word here or there to kind of uh, do a better explanation. Okay, so that okay, is... One thing, let me add, so yeah, the reason sure. I think he's using Gardon, because it's a stronger version, like according to the English, keep it always. So Gardon means, you know, lock it tight, guard it with... Yes, I, 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 I would agree. Again, I don't, I don't have that, the French knowledge, but I would definitely say that if he's using that word, it's probably something of a... Like, not just the same thing, but something that's stronger, stronger than the way it was coming out in the Hebrew. Because why, why bring the French word otherwise? So it must be that there's a little bit of an emphasis there that, that's coming out through that word. Okay, let's continue. This is where it gets really interesting here. Take a look at verse 2. And it will be on the day that you cross the Jordan to the land the Lord your God is giving you. So again, this will be in the soon, in the near future, when you cross the Jordan... Um, that was, by the way, that was the approach of the Jewish people into Israel. They didn't go through, you know, a road. They didn't go through uh, border control. They crossed over a river, the Jordan River. So when you, when you cross the Jordan, uh, then you shall set up for yourself huge stones and plaster them with lime. Okay, again, uh, Moses is telling the people, when you cross the Jordan, set up huge stones and put lime plaster over them. What do you do with these stones? What, what, what's the purpose? Let's continue. These were monuments. And what are they a monument to? Take a look. Now, verse 3. When you cross, you shall write upon them all the words of this Torah, in order that you may come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord God of your forefathers has spoken to you. In other words, when you cross the Jordan, set up monuments. You know, you set up like you have statues and monuments to great, wonderful achievements and, you know, the founding of this or that or the other. But what should be on the monument of a Jewish country? The Torah. How beautiful is that? Right. Not, you know, uh, a statue of Moses or a statue of Joshua. No, 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 no. Put up these huge stones and put words of Torah on them. That is our legacy. That is our strength. Let's continue inside, and I'm going to share with you the Talmud in a moment. Let's continue inside. When you cross, no, I already did that. Um, yeah, we did that already. Okay, verse 4. And it will be, when you cross the Jordan, that you shall set up these stones, regarding which I command you this day on Mount Abel, and you shall plaster them with lime. Okay, seems to be a repetition of what we just read. And there... You shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield any iron upon them. So no iron tools to cut the stones. They have to be naturally uh, hewn or whatever, natural stones. By the way, there was a, in ancient times, there was a miracle. There was this miraculous worm or creature um, that cut the stones somehow. That's what it says. 
And that's how they cut stones without using uh, iron utensils or, or implements. The reason why no iron, uh, the Torah said earlier, is because in a previous uh, book, I think, of the Torah, the Torah says that iron is used for weaponry and, and God does not want any uh, type of tools that could be used to hurt in his temple. Okay, let's continue. Um, okay, you shall build the altar of the Lord your God out of whole stones. And on it you shall offer up burnt offerings to the Lord your God. Verse 7, you shall slaughter peace offerings. You shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Okay, getting back to the stones. Verse number 8. You shall write upon the stones all the words of this Torah very clearly. Moses, so once again, write on these stones. How many times, by the way, does Moses talk about the stones? If you notice, there were three times. I want to just highlight this. Um, verse 2 talked about setting up huge stones. Verse 4 talks about setting up stones. And verse number, uh, verse number 8, right upon the stones. And, and through a casual glance, it might seem that it's just three times saying the same thing. Make the stones, put up the stones, write the inscription of Torah on it, and it's just repeating it a bunch of times. The Talmud weighs in on this. I want to share with you the Talmud in a moment, but just keep that in mind that there are three mentions of stones in this reading. Let's continue. Moses and the Levitic priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Pay attention and listen to Israel. This day you have become a people to the Lord your God. I love it. You know, this day, it's finally here. You're finally about to be cut loose and go on your own. You're becoming a nation. You're becoming a people. You're becoming an Am. Until now, you've been uh, coddled. It's been, you know, you've been under wraps, more or less. Soon, you're going, to be, you're going to really be on your own. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and fulfill His commandments and His statutes, which I command you this day. Okay, once again, keep the covenant. I want to share with you the Talmud Tractate Sota, and that's coming up right over here. Take a look. We're going to study some Talmud together. Um, the bold words are the actual translation of the Talmud. The other words are kind of the ex explanation or the bridge words to kind of give a context. Let's jump in. The Gemara, the Talmud, returns to the discussion of how the Ark was brought into Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael means the land of Israel. So how was the Ark of the Covenant actually brought into the land of Israel? Here we go. You are found saying, in other words, we find that there were three sets of stones. Remember I pointed out that there are three mentions of stones in this reading? There were actually three sets. It's not the same set of stones. Three different sets of stones. One is a set of stones that Moses erected in the land of Moab outside of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan. As it is stated, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses took upon himself to expound this law, etc. And it states there with regard to the mitzvah to erect the stones of Mount Abel, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law, again using the word ba'er. So the word ba'er was used in our reading. The word ba'er is used with regard, in the beginning of Deuteronomy with regard to Moses explaining the Torah to the people. So it's derived through a verbal analogy between the word ba'er that appears with regard to Moses and the word Ba'er that appears with regard to Mitzvah to write the Torah on stones on Mount Abel. So what do we learn from the two words Ba'er? These are unique words that are used, one in the context of Moses and one in the context of the stones. This tells us that Moses also wrote the Torah on stones. This is what's called a Gzerat Shava. Gzerat Shava is one of the methodologies of interpreting the Torah where you take an unusual, and it's only based on tradition, but the hook 
the way we see it in the text is there's a word in one place, a word in another place, and it's the same word used in both places. There's an analogy drawn between the two spaces, and that's how we derive the law. Um, does that make sense what I just said? Yes? A keyword here and a keyword there, and we, we understand that they're linked conceptually, and therefore we can draw one to the other and reverse as well. So it uses the word, a Hebrew word, be'er, explain, regarding Moses. It used the word be'er, explain, regarding the stones. That tells us, or that, that reminds us, that hints to us, that Moses also wrote inscribed Torah on stones. That's one set. And, the Talmud continues, there is one set of stones that Joshua erected in the Jordan, inside the Jordan River. As it is stated, Joshua also, this is from the book of Joshua itself, um, Joshua also set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest that bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. That's the full verse. The Talmud just quotes the bolded words, but the full verse is here. And there is, so that's the second set. It, so, one out of Israel, on the other, where, where Moses was and where he's buried, one, or where he passed away, one inside the Jordan as they were crossing, they quickly, <laughs> hold on, let's quickly write this Torah thing. You know, they, they wrote some Torah on stones and they put it in the river. And then, oh, oh, I'm sorry, let me explain. The Jordan River split for the people. Remember the, the sea split after the Exodus? The Jordan River also had a miracle. So in the middle of the river, they put these stones. Next, and there is one set of stones, the third set, that Joshua erected in Gilgal. That was the place where the Jews first settled with the Ark when they first got into, uh, into Israel. As it is stated, and these 12 stones which they, which they took out of, out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Okay, let's continue. The sages taught... How did the Jewish people write the Torah on the stones? Like, how did it work? Rabbi Yehuda said, there's, a, there's going to be a dispute here. Rabbi Yehuda says, they wrote it, they inscribed it on the stones. As it is stated, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law. That's, we just read that today. And afterward, after they wrote it on the stones, they plastered them over with plaster. Do you remember where, where Moses said, put lime, put plaster on, on the stones? Remember that? We read that inside. So Rabbi Yehuda says, first they wrote the Torah, they inscribed the words of Torah, and then on top of it, they put the plaster. Rabbi Shimon said to him, to Rabbi Yehuda, it doesn't make any sense. According, he says to Rabbi Yehuda, he says, according to your statement that they plastered over the writing, how did the nations of the world study Torah? Why would they cover the writing? It makes no sense. Are you with me in this question? Look, if you're erecting a monument... What's the point? That people read it. You know, maybe you set up a tour, you make some money on the side. No, I'm kidding. You set up a monument, and the, object the objective is that you have, you know, a plaque or whatever. Here, the whole thing was a plaque. But you have a conversation. You have a, a narrative. You have something that shares with the viewer the message that you want to convey. So what did Rabbi Huda just say? He said, they wrote it on the stones, and then they cover with plaster. Folks, if you cover the words, the inscription with plaster, you can't read the inscription. Lime plaster, you know what that looks like? It's like green, it's heavy, it's thick, it's opaque. So Rabbi Shimon says to this rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, what, what are you thinking? How did the nations of the world study Torah? So look what the rabbi answered. He said to him, he said back to him, 
No. The Holy One, blessed be He, granted them, the nations of the world, an extra degree of understanding. And they sent their scribes, and they peeled off the plaster and copied it down. Oh, man. And on account of this matter, their decree to be sent to the pit of doom was sealed. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I don't love the pit of destruction, but it, it sounds like a... Anyway, the point is, as once the Torah was in their possession, they should have studied it, and they did not study The point is, it was accessible. We never held it. We put it on the stones. They could have read it. They didn't read it. Culpability lies with those. In other words, they can't. The nation of the world cannot use an excuse. We didn't know about morality. We didn't know about Torah's values. We had no idea you guys were hoarding it for yourself. No, sorry, we put it on the stones. And even though we covered it with plaster, they still had their scribes come down, etc. Rabbi Shimon says, no, 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 no. Rabbi Shimon questioned Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda answered. Rabbi Shimon is not happy with that answer. He says, no. This is not what happened. Rather, the Jewish people wrote the text of the Torah on top of the plaster. They first plastered the stones with the lime and mixture, and then they inscribed the Torah on top of that. And they wrote below for the Gentiles to read that the verse commands the Jewish people to destroy the Gentile inhabitants of Eretz Yisrael. That's if they're idolaters and they don't uh, respond to the peace um, overtures. Um, yeah, and you derive from the fact that they wrote this first, that if the Gentiles who lived in Israel would have repented, in other words, would have uh, gotten along, then the Jews would have accepted them and allowed them to live in the land of Israel. Yes, Donna, go ahead. Um, a week or two ago, we learned, I think it was in the Jewish course of why, why don't Jews, you know, proselytize. Yes. And we said, who didn't let live? Does this contradict that? No, 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 because this is not about necessarily... Um, the, the, the Jewish mitzvot, this would be kind of universal teachings of Torah that could apply to everyone. So the idea would be to teach a universal standard of morality. That's why I use the example, I don't know if I did use it, in my head I, I was thinking about the example of, you know, basic morality, like the value of human life, human beings creating the divine image, um, take care of your, love your neighbors yourself, like debate, like classic stuff that was meant for, as a monument for all. That's kind of the gist of what, of what the Talmud is saying. It was clearly meant not for the Jew. The Jew has the Torah. You're writing a monument. You're writing it for the tourists. So the tourists don't need to know that it's a Jewish thing that we don't wear wool and linen. That's <laughs> not relevant for the every person, right? And, and as you said correctly, the goal is not to um, proselytize and to get everyone to convert to Judaism. That's never been the intention. Intention is to be a light unto the nations, and the people should live a good life. Uh, when I say good, I mean a, a moral, just, and, and, and divine life, and that, that's what this objective was. And th to the point that the Talmud says that we try to make it, according to Rabbi Shimon, you didn't put the plaster on top because you don't want to put any barriers in between uh, the others and the message because you wanted everyone to learn. And the message here is, even though the Torah says to drive out the nations, that wasn't necessarily a hard and fast rule. The Torah says, go into Israel and drive out the nations and settle the land. But that's not, the Talmud says that wasn't the case. If the, if the local inhabitants of Israel accepted the live and let live idea, the, 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 that thing of, you know, driving them out to settle would not have been a thing. They would have been allowed to live in the land of Israel. Um...
Let's see. Uh, okay. All right. Now that Tom gets into a, to a detailed discussion, here's what I want to share with you. I want to share with you a mystical insight on the plaster. You guys ready? So according to, there are two opinions. Rabbi Yehuda says, you first inscribe the stones, then you pour the plaster on top, which makes it more complicated to read. Rabbi Shimon says, no, 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 no. You first put the plaster, and then you put the inscription on top. Okay. So all the, I mean, even the Talmud points out the question against Rabbi Yehuda's position, is that how you, how you going to read it? And so he explained, well, they had scribes that were smart, and they peeled it off, and they got it, whatever. I want to share with you a mystical idea. I don't know if it's mystical, but a, a deeper, like a drush, like a homiletical understanding of this. And that is that Torah re requires a little bit of digging, right? The depth of the Torah's messages are not always on the surface. That's the deeper meaning with pouring the plaster on top. It's kind of indicative. It's, it's kind of reflective of the nature of Torah study itself. It's not always right there in your fingertips. Look, in two, 2020, 2020, we try to make it accessible. We, we, we try to make it as accessible as possible at the fingertips. But not always is it the case. Sometimes you encounter something in Torah and you, you're curious. You know, you're puzzled. It's like, that sounds weird. It sounds not relevant. And I know I, th I think I mentioned this yesterday about digging into Torah to, to discover its time. Yeah, it's, it's everyday relevance. I spoke about the idea that Torah is everyday new and fresh and that we need to make it new and fresh and figure out how that is. We have a similar theme today, that sometimes it's going to be obvious, sometimes it's going to be under a layer of plaster. And you look at it like, oh, no, that's not valuable. I don't get that. That's not, that's not significance. That looks ugly. I, I don't know if it's ugly or not, by the way. I've, I don't know what lime plaster would look like. I, I don't have a good visual sense of what that would be. But let's just say it's not the most visually appealing. Let's just say. I don't know if it is or not. But certainly you don't see a, a deeper message there. You'd say, yeah, eh, that's archaic, it's old, it's, it's out of date, it's not, not relevant to me. I got, my, I got stuff that I'm dealing with, and, and that's not that. The Torah says no. According to Rabbi Yehuda, you got to have the expert scribes to peel off the surface and to look inside. It says in Pirkei Avot, I'm waxing Aramaic. That's for Aramaic. It's either Aramaic or Hebrew, I'm not sure which one. Dig in it and dig in it, says the rabbi, who, whichever rabbi says this, um, I forget which one, because everything is in it. Dig, dig in Torah, because everything is, is found there. And if it's not on the surface, you got to dig. So, lots of things are on the surface. When you look at it immediately, like, wow, that's a great perspective. That's immediately relevant to my life. Sometimes, I don't know, all I see is plaster. All I see is lime plaster. Right? It feels so foreign. It feels so green. So what's the message? Foreigner, whatever. What's the message? The message is dig. Take off a layer. Take off another layer. Don't stop looking until, we find, until you find something of relevance and significance. And, and I think the overarching theme of today's uh, discussion is the idea of creating a monument. And what's a monument? It's not a military monument. It's not, it's not anything else. The monument was exclusively about Torah and Torah's message. And that becomes our calling. What does it mean to be a light into the nations, right? Look, you can get into the lighting business and sell bulbs and LEDs and what I, these cool looking 
you know, things behind me. Not a problem. And that's how you might be a light unto the nations. But I think there's a more accessible thing. By the way, a Chicago O'Hare Airport, isn't there like part of the terminal that has lighting like this? Am I wrong? I remember going, it, I'm right, right? Yeah, I've been to Chicago. I remember there was like ceiling that had all these cool psychedelic um, things. When I, when I first went to Yeshiva out of town a few years ago, a few now, um, I went from Pittsburgh to London. Pittsburgh to London. I was in high school in Pittsburgh, and then I went to Yeshiva in London for a year. Uh, wonderful Yeshiva, had a great year. But my first flight out, when I first started, listen to this itinerary. I went from Pittsburgh, I guess it was the cheapest flight. Who knew back then? I went from Pittsburgh to Chicago to Newark. Are you with me? To London. That's, that's how that happened. Now, I haven't thought about that in a little while, but now that I, I verbalize it, that's kind of crazy. That better have been a really good deal. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Back then, travel agents, you know, nothing online, you know, before the internet took off or whatever, you know. Anyway, getting back to the point. So what's the point? What's our monument? What's our legacy? To be a moral light unto the nations. And it's not us, by the way. It's Torah. Torah speaks for itself. Hopefully, we don't distort the message on the way out. That's our hope. Our hope is that we don't mess it up. If we could be a pure conduit for Torah, that's the best, that's, that's, that's the greatest, um, that's the greatest thing that we can hope for. That's, the, that's what we could strive for, to not get in the way. Because the truth is the truth. And Torah's teachings are so beautiful and so uplifting and so spiritual and so divine and so everything. If we could present it, get out of the way and just make it available for people, that's amazing. And that was really what this is about. And also, according to Rabbi Huda, made people work for it a little bit, just a little bit. By the way, you know, there's something called the oral tradition or the oral Torah, the oral law. So there's what's written, five books of Moses, but then there's all the explanations. Like, for example, Yom Kippur is coming up. The Torah doesn't say to fast on Yom Kippur. Everyone knows it's a fast day, but the Torah doesn't say that. The Torah says, afflict, this is the quote, afflict yourself on, on that day. Afflict yourself, what does that mean? Should I lie down on a bed of nails? Should I, um, uh, what does it mean, afflict, afflict yourself? What does that actually mean? For me, it would be eating mushrooms. I don't, I don't like mushrooms. But like, what, is it, like, what does that mean, afflict yourself? So we know, based on the oral tradition, when Moses taught it, when God taught it to Moses, he said, write this down, but here's what you're supposed to do. And Moses delivered it to us the same way. Here's the written script. Here's the explanation. So some commentaries deal with the question, why didn't they just write everything down? Eventually, by the way, it was written down. That's the mission and the Talmud that we just studied. So eventually it was written down, and because of all the years, there were some certain things that were subject to dispute. But why wasn't it written down from the beginning? So some say it's like the plaster, because we're meant to work for it. We're meant to have dialogues and have conversations, because if everything's written down, it's easy, and you don't even have to read it, because it's all in the book. Somebody wants to know, hey, it's in the book. So do you know it? No, it's in the book, like phone numbers nowadays. You don't need to know a phone number, because the phone knows the phone number. I don't need to know it. The phone's got it. We would do the same thing with Torah. I don't need to know Torah. It's in the book. But if it's not all written down, you got to know it. You got to remember it to be able to transmit it and to know it. The same thing is true with the plaster. It's like a similar theme, the idea of working to earn the Torah. So there's two themes that I want to share about the plaster. Number one, if, you, if at first glance you don't see it, dig beneath the surface. Number two, Torah study is meant to, is meant to evoke from us some effort, some energy, 
and some investment of, uh, of our resources. I mean, our, our physical resources, um, time and energy and, and brain power to uncover it. All right, make sense? Yes? All right, now let's get plastered. No, 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 come on. No, not at all. Chas v'shom, God forbid. Um, so that's a little bit about the stones. I'm not going to make another joke. That's a little bit about the stones and the plaster on the stones. And um, yeah, that's it. Any questions, comments? I think, um, remember we did the course, the Jew, Jews' gift to the world? Yes, yes. So I think this thought of, you know, the plaster and looking beneath, I mean, in our, you know, in the secular world, we have the expressions, don't judge a book by its cover. Yes. Beauty is skin deep, something like that. Correct. So. I love that. By the way, you reminded me of that course. That was the, that was the last course we did in person before, uh, before COVID. Um, that course was exactly this. It was exactly about, okay, let's look at, at, um, let's look at universal values and let's see where they came from and let's trace it. I mean, not all, but some came from Torah and, and as we discussed in the course, faced fierce opposition. It took a while for people to dig within themselves even, and to, to, to embrace and to, you know, to come to a place of acceptance of these values, like the fact that people should be treated equally. We're still working on that, by the way. But that's a Torah value that requires some work sometimes. It's not always Rabbi. easy. Yeah, Ray, go ahead. Where is Rashi buried? In what country? Rashi is, I know he was born in, Tro I don't know how to pronounce it, Troy's? Tro Tro I don't know how to pronounce it. Twa. Twa. There you go. Twa. T-R-Y-E-S. Yeah. Twa. So Twa. Born in... Is that in another country? In France. France. In France. Okay. Now, hold on one second. That's that's where he was born. Um, I can do a quick... Um, yeah, I'm not sure if he's buried there. Let's find out where Rashi was buried. So he was... Oh, yeah, yeah. Born and died in Twa, France. Born in, born February 22nd. Oh, my birthday's February 20th. <laughs> We're almost brothers. Born February 22nd, 1040. Oh my gosh, 1040. You know what that means? It's 980 years ago he was born. That's crazy. That's, man, Rashi. What a dude. All right, and then he passed away. He passed away in 11, July 13th, 1105. He lived... 65 years. I, I got to tell you just very quickly, he wrote a commentary on Five Books of Moses, on the Mishnah and the Talmud, and on the Books of the Prophets. I mean, dude was, I, he was amazing. Like, talk about, and, and his commentary is like the gold standard. He's not going to give you the mystical stuff. He's not going to give you, and, but, but I, intentionally, he's giving you straightforward, you know, straight down the middle um, explanation. Rashi is the bomb. Sorry? I think he developed like a different writing. Like so, so Rashi. Yeah, the script. I, you know what? I, I think it had to do with the typesetter or something. It's something to do with kind of like a, a technical thing. The Hebrew script of Rashi, the typeset, is a different character, different letters than the typical block letters that we, would, that we associate with the Hebrew letters. It's, I, you know, I... For me, it's like I, I sometimes take it for granted and I forget that it's a different character set, 
but it's yeah, it's very very different, and it, you know you have to get used to it. Um, I don't, you know, I don't remember. I think it was something something very technical with like a typesetter thing, but once it's been accepted, it's kind of like a holy thing. Um, what did I want to tell you though, regarding Rashi? Oh, Rashi. So Rashi's from France, and Sandrine, right before you got on, we were learning a Rashi where Rashi quotes a French word. Can I share it with you? Pardon. Pardon. What? Hold on. Check us out. This word right here. Donna, pronounce it. Gardo. This guy right here, this word. Ah. It's right, Gardon. Yeah, it's, it's all French. It's like Guardian. Yeah. Basically, Rashi would translate words in French. You know, if it, if he wanted to bring out something special, he would he would use French because that's where he was. That was his uh, that was his native tongue. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, France representing today, representing strong. Yeah. Let me. So I studied French literature in France. I have a master's in French politics. But my point is. Today, one of the leading French philosophers, modern contemporary, is Jewish, Jean-Henri Lévy. Jean-Henri Lévy. He's one of the prominent lead. He's Jewish. One of the prominent leading Jewish nice. philosophers today. That's yeah. great. Bernard-Henri Lévy. Voilà. Yes. We call him BHL. Yes. BHL. Yes. Bernard-Henri. I think I think I've heard of him. I th the name yeah, the name said, but uh, yeah, he's famous in the U.S. too. Yeah, yeah. He's, that, yeah. He, he's focused on United States French relations. By the way, Rashi, um, he lived. I don't know if it's wine country around there. I don't know the geography, but Rashi had a vineyard, according to tradition. Rashi mm. was a winemaker. <laughs> Go figure. When in France, you got to make wine, like what else are you going to do, right? Yeah. I mean, like, might as well. <laughs> might as well live large. All right, great to see everybody. Matt, great to see you. Stephanie, great to see you. Sandrine, great to see you. Ray, great to are see you. you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for reminding me. All right. I almost forgot. And Donna, good to see you. Give me one second. Oh, by the way, Donna, I saw your email. Um, it looks great. I'm just going to take a look at it, we'll, and we'll tighten up every, all the pieces. Ray, a message for you. You're all set. It'll be delivered. It's all taken care of. We got this. Thank you. So just passing on the message. It's it's through some through some other you know, folks. But uh, but just want to make sure that you knew. Give me a second. You can marvel at the shul in the meantime, and I'll be right back with a ram's horn. I worked for the uh, Société Générale, I was head of mergers and acquisitions for them, so I was going back and forth with France for like 10 years. Oh, wow. So I was engaged to a French man. Well, I oh. thought we were engaged, but... <laughs> By the way, Donna, I didn't know about this. I, I'm... Yeah. I'm sorry, Rabbi? No, I didn't. So, that's so cool. I didn't know this about you, about all your, your, your French activities. Uh -huh. You don't know all those institutions.
institution, but I know it's also top education. No, no, no. Sandrine is saying that I don't know, but she can vouch that it's uh, it's high level. My pleasure. Thanks as always for the reminder. Great to see you all. I got to run, but tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel. Tonight, Torah studies. Uh, we're going to learn about a deeper look at the laws of Bikurim, the first fruits. We talked about that on uh, on Monday about the the farmer with the basket, with the with the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to give a gift. Um, we'll talk about that and more. Um, and don't forget about the dinner next week, next Thursday night. Yeah. It's uh, it's off the hook. Yeah. All right. See you guys. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure.